Hi, this is Doug Hooley, your host of the Called Out Cafe podcast. You're listening to episode number 17, the final episode in the current series titled The Biblical Worldview of the Spirit Realm. The topic of this final episode is that of what happens when we die. (laughs) I know, another lighthearted topic, right? Well, when everyone, elect and non-elect die, as we all know, their physical bodies decay and return back to the soil or the elements that Adam was taken from. Unless one is counted among the elect at the time that Jesus returns, everyone's going to die. Scripture confirms this. This is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9 also informs us that judgment follows death. Well, there's several judgments mentioned in the Bible that I want to talk about. For example, the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, and the other is the sheep and goats judgment. That's mentioned in the Olivet Discourse that you can read about in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, uh, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Well, each judgment mentioned in the Bible is for specific groups of people at specific future times. In the case of these two judgments that I mentioned, one is for determining who will go to the lake of fire, and the other is to determine which living human beings will continue to live and inhabit the earth during the millennial reign of Jesus. The totality of Scripture pertaining to heaven and hell indicates that immediately upon death, we are all initially judged and sorted. This judgment is simply whether one has been elected to salvation by God or they have not. This doesn't require a courtroom or witness testimony or any other kind of evidence. God has always known who he has elected to salvation and who would respond to his calling. Judgment not only means determining one's guilt or innocence or what someone deserves, it also includes the imposition of the penalty associated with being found guilty, or more accurately, not having been elected to salvation. That penalty is being separated from God. Upon death, we're initially judged according to if we belong to Jesus or not. The spirits of those who are not elected to salvation go to hell upon their death, the place often referred to in the New Testament as Hades. That's the Greek word used in the ancient world that represented the underworld, where the Greek god Hades rules over the dead. It was thought of as a place that was miserable to be in. There was consciousness, and people desperately wanted out. Well, we can picture hell as a holding place, like a jail, until the final judgment, which afterwards, after the final judgment, one would be transferred from that facility, hell, (laughs) which is like jail, to what can be thought of as a long-term holding facility, or prison which is the lake of fire. We've already covered the reality of both heaven and hell in previous episode in this series. If you have any doubt as to their existence and reality and haven't listened to those episodes, please do so. 
In the parable of Lazarus and the rich man that's found in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 30, upon the death of the rich man, we see his soul being taken to Hades. Remember, that's the holding place for the physically dead. That's different than where we see Lazarus, the poor man, residing after his death. He was resting in the bosom of Abraham, in the arms of Abraham. Well, besides that, there are many scriptures which indicate there is a holding place of penalty which exists now, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, as as opposed to the place of final judgment, which is the eternal lake of fire. Not a nice place either. Well, what about the concept of innocent until proven guilty? You know, we we want to superimpose that over the top of uh, the Bible. Well, Of course, God's creation is not based on the United States Bill of Rights or any earthly justice system. For the non-elect, there are no defense attorneys or rights of appeal. Well, having been sorted according to if you are elected to salvation or not, many believe Scripture indicates people are then additionally judged according to their deeds. However, some of the scriptures people rely on in this regard may be referring to life on this earth. For example, in this life, we do tend to reap what we sow, just like Galatians 6, 7 and many other scriptures indicate. Yet, the reaping and sowing passage in Galatians seems to also be relating to the afterlife. Many scriptures are clearly referring to deeds-related justice, after death, that's connected to the actions taken in this life. For example, Jesus tells us that the servant who knew his master's will, but did not do it, will receive a, quote, severe beating, unquote. But the one who, quote, did not know his master's will, but still deserved a beating, (laughs) will receive a light beating, unquote. You can read about such beatings <laughs> in Luke chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. It's uh, not a passage often quoted to comfort people. I, I trust the judgment of God, but whatever this passage means, it indicates a difference in punishment or treatment based on someone's level of knowledge and willful disobedience. But part of the gospel and the hope of those who know Jesus is that we also know from other passages of scriptures that these judgments pertain to the wicked and damned servants, since there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are wicked and damned servants of Jesus? It's not those who are not doing enough good works. Because there is no work or deed that we can do to gain eternal life. It's only through the grace of God that one is illuminated by the Holy Spirit and believes that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God who makes possible our salvation. No, the wicked servants who deserve this metaphorical beating are the millions of people who are Christians in name only. Or perhaps they've chosen to follow the wrong or false Jesus. That's the topic of our next podcast series. It's clearly a deeds or works-related judgment 
that appears to occur at the Great White Throne Judgment, which takes place at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus. Let me read for you what takes place there. This is found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The judgment that takes place before the great white throne, which God sits on, is at a specific place and at a specific time. It is at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus. Well, here's a brief eschatological timeline. Yet, in our future, the end of this age we're living in will occur. That will come about when Jesus returns to this earth and brings with him the kingdom of heaven. There's a bunch of events associated with his return that we don't have time to talk about right now. If you're interested in those events, besides studying your Bible yourself, you can listen to our previous podcast series, which is based on my book called Watch. That book is based on Jesus' own talk he gave to his disciples regarding his return. That talk is called the Olivet Discourse in theological circles because It was a discourse that Jesus gave when they were on the Mount of Olives. Anyway, at the end of this series of events which take place, which is normally called the Tribulation Period, I'm sure you've all heard that, Jesus will have put all of his enemies under his feet and will establish his kingdom on this present earth. The physical bodies of those who are currently dead and buried you know, they're decaying physical bodies, but are alive and with Jesus now, you know, the departed saints, the departed elect, they're in heaven with Jesus now. They will have been resurrected from the dead at, the, at this time. Those who are alive at the time Jesus returns, who have been elect to salvation in the future, you know, the called out ones, the ecclesia, will have also been transformed into new eternal creatures along with the resurrected departed saints. It's that group of people, the ecclesia, who have existed both now and since the time of Jesus and however long into the future before Jesus returns, who will rule and reign with Jesus on this present earth for what the book of Revelation says is a thousand years. Whether that's a literal or figurative thousand years, We can't be completely sure, but I have no reason to think otherwise, anything other than it is a literal thousand years, given the most likely literal use of numbers found elsewhere in the book of Revelation. Well, the earth will still have mortal human beings living on it. I'll talk about that in a minute, but it's at the end of this thousand-year kingdom that the great white throne judgment takes place. 
At the end of the thousand-year reign of Jesus, there is one last brief rebellion against God that takes place when Satan is released from hell. It's just after that uprising is severely squashed by God with fire from heaven that this great white throne judgment takes place. As I said, it'll be a judgment involving those who are dead at that time. That includes all of the dead who were not resurrected at the return of Jesus. In other words, the damned. They are not resurrected when Jesus returns. It'll also include all of those who die during the 1,000-year reign of Jesus. Even though we're told that people will have a much longer lifespan during that future time in the thousand-year reign of Jesus, they will still be subject to death. There'll be people who die during the millennial reign of Jesus whose names will be found in the book of life that's used at the great white throne judgment. However, all of the dead who were not resurrected upon Jesus' return will not find their names written in that book. This is not a judgment where people's deeds are weighed out and we find out if there were enough for them to gain eternal life or not. This is the imposition or carrying out of a judgment that's already taken place. Yes, this scripture says that they will be judged according to what they have done. However, there's only one thing that will keep them or any of us from being thrown into the lake of fire. That's having their name written in the book of life. It's binary. It's in there or it's not. There's only one way for that to happen. One action that will result in that occurring. One work that they can do. And that is the belief in Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah and total reliance on His works for their salvation. The same holds true for those mortals in the future who will be alive during the millennial reign of Jesus. Like I said, it is binary. Will they only rely on Jesus for their eternal well-being, or will they not? That is what the great white throne judgment is about. It's not for those who were elect and in Jesus. This is not the judgment you want to be resurrected for. After this judgment, hell and death are thrown into the lake of fire also. They will no longer be a factor in God's creation, no longer needed by him. The end of the next age, the millennial kingdom of Jesus, will come to pass and God will create a completely new heaven and earth. It will be inhabited by the eternal people of God who have made it through all of the previous judgments. Well, what about the sheep and goats judgment talked about in the Matthew chapter 25 passage? That judgment is the last thing Jesus talks about during his Olivet Discourse. It is a very often misused portion of Scripture. The sheep and goats judgment is a judgment of the living who were not caught up to meet Jesus in the air at his return, but have somehow made it through the future tribulation period and somehow survived the outpouring of God's wrath on this earth. This judgment takes place at the very end of this age that we're currently living in and at the very beginning of the millennial age to come. It is a works or deeds related judgment. Every mortal human being who is still alive on planet earth at the end of this age after Jesus has returned 
and the elect have all been caught up to him, will be subject to the criteria of the sheep and goats judgment. So this judgment does not include those who have been transformed into their new eternal bodies. This judgment will be used to determine who will be able to continue to live on planet earth as the millennial reign of Jesus begins. What is the judgment criteria? Well, let me read it from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 40. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer to him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, showing hospitality to the stranger, clothing the unclothed, and visiting the sick and imprisoned. That is the works-based judgment criteria of the sheep and goats judgment. However, the key ingredient is that these things are done for the brothers of Jesus. Jesus said, When you did it for the least of these, who, my brethren, It is as though you did it for Jesus himself. Who are the brethren of Jesus? Just anybody and everybody? Who are those he considers family and children of his own father? It's that group which Jesus is concerned about being taken care of here. So who are they? Well, they are, of course, his followers, those he's purchased with his blood, who are alive during the end of the age. They're promised to suffer great persecution at the hands of the Antichrist and his government up until the time they're rescued by Jesus at his return. Those who are sympathetic and tend to the needs of those belonging to Jesus at that time, who are living under persecution, even though they have not yet placed their own trust in Jesus, they will still be determined to be sheep and allowed to live on in Jesus' kingdom. On the other hand, those who turn a blind eye to the need of the brethren of Jesus during that time, or in fact are in alliance with the Antichrist and his government, will be determined to be goats and cast into hell. We know that there will still be many nations that will continue after the return of Jesus, and so many people will inhabit those nations. However, It will only be the people that are determined to be sheep, according to this judgment. The goats will be cast into the eternal fire. 
This eternal fire may be referring to the lake of fire rather than hell. But either way, the lake of fire is the ultimate destination. We also know from Revelation chapter 14 that those who take the infamous mark of the beast and have pledged their allegiance to the Antichrist will automatically qualify as goats. Simply stated, the sheep and goats judgment will be used to see who will populate the earth at the beginning of Jesus' millennial kingdom on this earth. Yet, this judgment is used time after time by teachers and preachers as incentive for Christians to do good works or else. This passage of scripture has been placed on the backs of many followers of Jesus as pressure to do good works as though we will be judged according to those works. Of course, this passage demonstrates the kinds of behaviors that God values, like taking care of the needs of those who God puts in our path that are helpless to take care of their own needs. But those who want to impose the particular behaviors and practices found in Matthew chapter 25 in the Sheep and Ghosts Judgment on the ecclesia, the called out ones, need to look elsewhere for scriptural support. This is a list of works specifically tied to a group of people at a specific time when a non-grace-based judgment will take place. Grace, the blood of Jesus, belief in Jesus, at this particular judgment makes no difference. This is a works-based judgment. Well, the immediate penalty for all whose names are not found in the book of life at the great white throne judgment regardless of their deeds, is that they're thrown into the lake of fire. Is there additional punishment beyond that based on people's deeds? I don't know. What's worse than being thrown into a fire that doesn't consume? I don't know. But everyone's works or deeds are found wanting. There is only one deed which saves, one deed which will result in their name being in the book of life. To receive the free gift of God, being elected to believe in Jesus and count on Him only for eternal salvation. You can read more about the sheep and goats judgment in my book, Watch. The bottom line, or the so what statement, regarding both the sheep and goats and the great white throne judgments, is that if you're currently alive and you're in Christ, meaning elect salvation by God, and you're purchased with the blood of Jesus, or you die in that state, or someone has died in that state, neither of these judgments pertain to you. They have nothing to do to you. They are not the criteria you will be judged by. If you're in Christ, you have already been judged, and you've been found innocent by virtue of the works of Jesus. There are two main theories about what happens to the elect of God between the time they die and when they're resurrected. Both theories agree that everyone's physical bodies decay in the grave. However, the first theory says that the elect spirit goes to be where Jesus is in heaven and waits there, without a resurrected body, in a blissful and conscious state, until the resurrection. The second theory says that the spirit or soul goes into a total state of unconsciousness or sleep and is awakened at the resurrection. Souls are safely stored in the presence of Jesus in heaven, in this theory. 
In this second theory, the soul being completely unconscious would not even realize that any time had passed between their death and their resurrection. Well, that doesn't sound bad. It's not a bad alternative, but I don't believe it's entirely biblical. There's a third theory that states, along with the body decaying in the grave, the soul of the elect completely ceases to exist. The only thing that remains of the person is the memory of them or something like a placeholder in the mind of God and the promise that they'll be resurrected. Like the second theory, to the dead, it would seem like no time had elapsed at all between the time they'd died and when they'll be resurrected. Again, not a bad, but I think unbiblical alternative. Well, let's look at what Paul taught. Many of the scriptures pertaining to what happens when we die work with any of the three interpretations I just mentioned. However, there are several scriptures that tip the scales in the direction of the option number one. When the elect die, their conscious spirit goes to heaven to be with Jesus. Here's one of those passages. This is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 9. For we know that if the tent which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would want to be unclothed, but that we would want to be further clothed, so that when this mortal may be swallowed up by life, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Paul doesn't leave room for or inform us of anything between having our earthly body destroyed, that's our tent destroyed, and having a home in heaven which is not made with hands. It's not a resurrected body, but a spiritual body. But we will never be found naked or without a home for our spirit, because we'll either be in our current tent, our current body, or we will have a heavenly dwelling. When this mortal life is over, it, this temporary life, will be swallowed up by what's called real life, not unconsciousness, not being reduced to a memory. When we're not in our bodies, we're at home with the Lord. This is a comforting thought. Not as comforting would be to hear, to be absent from the body is to have your unconscious soul stacked up in heaven like cordwood for possibly hundreds or even thousands of years. Well, finally, don't miss the last verse of this passage. Whether we are at home or away, our aim is to please Jesus. In other words, whether our physical body is dead and our spirit is alive with Jesus, or we're still alive in these current bodies or tents here on this earth. Either way, our aim is to please Him. We have a mission and a purpose or aim either way. 
Well, that's a hard mission to accomplish if we're deep in soul sleep, or altogether, we don't exist. Having an aim and doing what's required to achieve that aim requires having some sort of consciousness. Paul expressed a personal internal debate he was having about whether it was better to be physically dead or alive. This is what he wrote to the ecclesia in Philippi. He wrote, If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus, because of my coming to you again. That's in Philippians 1, verses 22 to 26. Paul essentially stated that to depart from his physical body or die would mean being present with Jesus. Again, he leaves no room for saying that eventually he would be with Jesus. The simple face value read is, If I die, I am with my Lord. Doubtful that Paul would be excited about being unconscious with his Lord or stored in the mind of God. That would be like Paul saying, I know I don't have anything in death awaiting me. I just want the pain of this world to stop. Not likely that he would be anxious to enter soul sleep just to put an end to this life and avoid any more trials and tribulations that came because of his service to God. That sounds like Paul was simply toying with the idea of taking the easy way out, a cop-out. Rather, Paul knew death would come soon enough and his time here would be fruitful. He was simply excited about seeing Jesus and was conveying how much better it would be for him personally. And he knew that to die would be to gain direct access to his master. I don't think there was any doubt in Paul's mind that if he were to die, he would be looking his master Jesus in the eye. In Revelation chapter 6, we see a group of souls that are under the altar, which is before the throne of God in heaven. Let me read that to you. This is Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here's the deal. John saw dead people. (laughs) What can we observe about the spirits of the departed we see in this passage? Even though they've suffered physical death, the souls of these martyrs have consciousness. They're conversant. They have a sense of time, saying, How long, O Lord? They seem to have an idea of what's going on on the earth. They have some ability to take possession of the robes that they are given. These souls are in the presence of the Lord, as the Second Corinthians passage suggests that they would be. Well, this revelation was designed and showcased by Jesus 
who is the truth. Why would he, the truth, make something up that was misleading and cause us to come to erroneous conclusions about the afterlife? Of course, he would not. In another passage, we see Jesus being accompanied by the spirits of the elect at his return. This is what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 14 to 18 tells us. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. I'll talk more about what it means to fall asleep in the way Paul uses the term here in just a little while, but it essentially means that they have physically died. For now, what or who is Jesus bringing with him upon his return? Is it mass quantities of disembodied, unconscious souls that need to be reinstalled in what remains of their old physical bodies? Or is it the spirits of those who have been excitedly, consciously, awaiting this moment to receive their resurrected bodies and be reunited with their loved ones who are in Christ, who have also been anxiously awaiting the return of Jesus from their physical perspective. Next, I'm sure you remember the story of the thief on the cross. One of the two thieves on the cross, he had one on his right and one on his left, one of them, next to Jesus, recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and asked for his mercy. In return, Jesus told that thief that he would be with him in paradise that same day. You can read about that in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 to 43. Paul wrote of being caught up into paradise also at one time in his life, and Jesus referred to paradise in the book of Revelation. There's three different times paradise is mentioned. Well, paradise is a reference to heaven, a real place. It's not a reference to the mind of God. Paradise is simply a descriptive title for heaven based on a Persian word meaning pleasure park. There is an interpretation of this scripture that says Jesus is actually saying that today I am truly telling you this, that you will be with me in paradise. Meaning being in paradise would not necessarily happen the same day that Jesus and the thief died together. This interpretation looks at the word today like it's Jesus saying, Look, today I'm going on record and saying this, that you will be with me in paradise. So it was only that day that Jesus informed the thief that being in paradise together would happen at some time in the future. Well, that interpretation is a bit of a stretch for me. It would be unique for Jesus to talk in that way. Not unique in how he emphasized that what he is saying is true. Like, you know, he says verily, verily a lot or truly, truly to emphasize that what he's saying is true. But the part in addition to already saying truly 
that he would have been double emphasizing how true it was by saying something like, I am declaring this important thing to be true today. That seems like a mouthful for a guy, even the Son of God, who is dying on a Roman cross. And it's just not the simplest way to understand what Jesus said. It's also not nearly as comforting for a man who's hanging on a cross, suffering and knowing that he's going to die that day, to hear from his Messiah that he recognized as the Messiah, Jesus. So, you believe in me? That's nice. What I'm going to tell you today is true. Someday, God only knows when, after you lose consciousness and blink out of existence, you'll eventually be with me in paradise. Good luck. See you on the other side. This theory, although possible, is not the simplest explanation of what Jesus meant, and for me, is a distant second-place interpretation. The purpose of Jesus' words were to provide comfort for this thief, this person who just, you know, recognized Jesus as the Messiah. This is one of Jesus' own now. Far more comforting for this dying man to hear from his Lord Jesus was, Take comfort. This will all be over with soon, today, and you will be with me in paradise. So, there is a number of scriptural arguments to be made that when we die, we go to be directly to be with Jesus in heaven. But there are additional indirect arguments to be made based on scripture, which are also in favor of the elect spirit going to heaven to be with Jesus. The first being that all the scriptures which indicate that there is a hell and the unsaved go there and have consciousness after they die, strongly suggest to me that the elect will also have consciousness at the time of death. However, they will not go to hell. They will go to be present with Jesus. Well, what about this soul sleep thing? I've already referred to one of the passages of Scripture where Paul uses the term fall asleep to refer to physical death. Another passage that those who believe that the soul goes to sleep upon death is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 55. Let me read that for you. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The soul sleep supporters believe Paul is saying that when we die, our spirits go into a state which is like sleep, and that Paul was comparing death and the status of our spirit with sleep. But why? Was he trying to tell us that the souls of the departed are not aware of anything or that they are alive, but in an altered state. Like in sleep, our 
tossing and turning in the grave, maybe dreaming. They hear things now and then that cause them to stir. Well, if this is true, we could go in all sorts of weird directions with our conclusions about what form soul sleep might take if we really want to compare death to sleep. Sleep, the word that Paul used, involves a great deal more than simply being unconscious. What I'm saying is that if you want to compare death with literal sleep, you need to compare all things that go with literal sleep. In the end, sleep is only an altered state of consciousness, not deep unconsciousness where one is completely unaware of everything and all thought processes and bodily functions have ceased. I'll tell you, you use this analogy with an insomniac, and they may think that death sounds like hell. They can't ever sleep. They they rarely get a good night's sleep. What does sleep mean anyway? No. The resurrection of the dead, physical bodies coming back to life and being transformed into eternal bodies is the context of what Paul is talking about. He's not addressing the conscious status of the departed spirit. Paul is simply equating sleep with the temporary state of the dead physical body. He's emphasizing the temporary nature of death. You go to bed at night and you appear unconscious, but there's a good chance you're going to rise up in the morning. Paul is saying those bodies might look dead, but it's just like they're sleeping. They'll rise up one day and become imperishable. Paul's making this statement from our earthly, human perspective about our perishable, temporary, physical bodies that lie in the grave. He's not talking about the status of our spirits when our perishable bodies die. Jesus, obviously, knowing that people like Abraham and the prophets physically die, still maintained that those who believe in him will never know what it's like to experience death. He was speaking of what takes place in the spirit realm when in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 51 to 52, say that they will never see death or taste it. What else could this mean other than Jesus was saying that the conscious spirits of the elect will never die? That's their spirits will never die. Their spirits will never blink out of existence. He didn't qualify this statement by saying, although the spirit will die temporarily, it will live again in the resurrection. Of course, that is true where the physical body is concerned. Yet, he said those who keep his words, believing in who he is and who he said he is, will never experience death. Well, what else could this mean? The spirit will continue when the body will not. Jesus also said that we must be, quote, born again, unquote, to gain eternal life and see the kingdom of God. You can read about that in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 7. Well, being born again is a term that's misused by many today. I believe what Jesus meant by it in John 3, 3 and 7 is that the elect are born again sometime during their physical life, whenever it is that our predestined election is realized by those who are elect. They become conscious of their salvation. They make a, uh, a decision at a point in time to 
accept what it is that Jesus did for them. That's the point that we probably think of where one becomes saved. They've been illuminated by the Holy Spirit to be able to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and we consciously accept him as the only one who can save us. It's at that point that our eternal life begins, at least from our perspective. We do not begin that life only to lose it again. That is far from the meaning of eternal or everlasting. Well, Peter tells us that the elect have been born again to a living hope in 1 Peter 1.3. It's a hope of, that, of life that does not seem to have a temporary interruption of soul sleep. There's no room for a reborn spirit to blink out or be put to sleep, only to come back to life again later. The blinked out soul would be missing a part of eternity. This all just seems counterintuitive in relation to the words eternal life. As Jesus pointed out, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as such, Matthew 12, 26 tells us that he is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. This implies that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all alive and with God right now. As recorded in John 11:25-27, it was also Jesus who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There is no interruption in life for those who believe in Jesus. Never die means never. According to 1 Peter 3, 18-22, at some time after being put to death and made alive in the Spirit, Jesus also preached the gospel to the spirits in prison. This is a tough passage and too big of a topic to cover here, but Peter relates these spirits to those who were alive during the days of Noah, but were in prison during Jesus' day. It's a safe assumption that this prison is talking about hell. Well, whether it was God's Holy Spirit or Jesus that did the preaching to those in hell, there is no indication that Jesus needed to wake these spirits up out of a soul sleep to preach to them. They were conscious. To put what the Bible has to say on this topic into greater context, as far as ancient civilizations, there were no Near Eastern cultures surrounding Israel who believed in such a thing as soul sleep. They all believed spirits lived on in the afterlife. They often buried their dead with things that they thought that they could use in the afterlife. The same was true, surprisingly, among the Jews of Jesus' day. They believed life continued after physical death. Recent finds of first-century Jewish ossuaries containing pots which may have contained grains for snacking on in the afterlife. And men were often buried with their prayer shawls. Jesus and his apostles only affirmed the belief in the afterlife throughout their teachings. The history of the doctrine of soul sleep does go back many hundreds of years, but there is very little depth to it. It just really didn't catch on early on. 
For the first record of it, there was a writing called Against the Pagans in about 305 AD by a guy named Arnobius. That taught that souls could not exist without a body unless God divinely preserved the soul for eternity. Arnobius was also among the first to teach that the souls of the wicked are annihilated rather than eternally punished. The purpose of the lake of fire, in their opinion, is to destroy whatever's thrown into it. Well, that's a Jehovah's Witness doctrine to this day. It wasn't until the mid-19th century that the idea of soul sleep began to more commonly circulate among a few Christian offshoot groups. This was after the prediction of the Millerites and the Jehovah Witnesses regarding the return of Jesus failed to come true. After Jesus failed to return as they predicted, the Jehovah Witnesses reasoned that those awaiting judgment could not be present with Jesus in heaven since they had not yet been judged. What's known as investigative judgment says that all who die are being preserved until it's their turn for judgment. The dead are placed in some sort of suspended state until that time. This paints a picture that all humans, whether they believe in Jesus or not, will individually one day stand trial in front of God. Well, let's talk about near-death experiences for a minute. I am not any sort of an expert on near-death experiences. NDEs, near-death experiences, are experiences in which people technically or medically die because their heart stops beating and the rest of their bodily functions cease. But the person says that during the time they are technically dead, they had some sort of conscious experience. Many times, it's what they call an out-of-body experience. They may remember floating towards a bright light. They may see departed loved ones. They might be looking down on their body in an operating room. They might meet Jesus or an angel. All I can really say about all of that based on the Bible is that according to the Hebrews passage I already quoted, we're appointed once to die, not two or more times. However, I am not at all questioning those who have had such experiences. They may have very well experienced something very real. However, I am convinced that what our medical science definition of death is, is not necessarily the same as what God's definition of death is. I think in addition to no brainwave or heartbeat, God's definition of physical death would include taking one's spirit from their mortal body and relocating it. There are no instruments that can measure that. So, calling such experiences near death is probably pretty appropriate. Because if you make it all the way past near death to totally dead, I don't think you're coming back from that, short of Jesus performing a miracle and resurrecting you like he did with Lazarus. I myself was medically dead for two and a half minutes following a heart procedure that I had done. I had a heart attack because the stent they just placed completely clogged up following the procedure while I was in the recovery room. It hurt pretty bad. I remember starting to what you might call circling the drain, <laughs> losing consciousness and going, uh, going out. Well, the next thing that I was conscious of was the blurry sight of about 
a half dozen faces standing at the foot of my bed, staring at me in silence. They just had shocked me, and they were waiting to see if I was going to wake up. Well, I did. In between going out and coming back, I did not have any kind of a NDE that I can remember. No visions of Jesus or a bright light. It was just blackness. But it also seemed like no time had passed in between when I went out and when I came back. Although I may have medically been dead, (laughs) I don't believe I was dead from God's perspective. He had not yet taken my spirit, or there would have been no shocking me back to life. But I will not judge others' experiences based on my own personal experience. I'll have to look to Scripture for that. And except for the Hebrews passage I've referred to, there is very little to go on. I will say that God has used that experience and my previous heart attack experience in my life to form my personal attitude towards death and dying. It's not the same as it once was. But that's the topic of perhaps another day. For many of you who've been there, you know that there are a lot of complicated thoughts and feelings to sort out. But at the end of the day, for me, I have to say that being aware of the presence of God throughout both these ordeals was extremely confidence-building where it comes to the mystery of death. I will also add that if someone comes back from their NDE with some kind of a message beyond the grave, that I would treat that message as though it were kind of like a prophecy. I would test it against what Scripture has to say. Anything conflicting with Scripture, of course, like what they say or they heard or saw, and any message that they say they were given, would of course be treated like a false prophecy and discarded. Although I won't pass a blanket judgment on such experiences, I have to leave room for the possibility that what they saw could have been the result of drugs during a procedure, or trauma to the body, or a brain that starts to power down and is suddenly functioning differently, or even a powerful, realistic dream. Those are just my thoughts. Like I said, I am no expert on this subject. Well, I talked a little bit about this a couple episodes ago, but what about ghosts? Do the spirits of the dead hang around in the physical world? To answer that question, let's first answer this one. Why is there a prohibition of contacting the dead in the Old Testament mentioned several times if it wasn't possible to do so? It's not only angelic spirits that there was a prohibition against contacting in the Old Testament, but also the human dead. Here's some quick references if you want to look them up in regards to that. Leviticus chapter 19, 31, chapter 20, 27. 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, Deuteronomy 18, 10 to 12. So, as I previously stated in the earlier podcast, it's not necessary to prohibit that which is not possible. We also know that some of the earliest Christian practices were that of making offerings to and praying to dead Christians. Of course, many Christian sects, including over 1.3 billion Roman Catholics, continue to pray to their dead ancestors and saints today. Because these early Christians believed the spirits of the dead saints hung around in death or could hear their prayers, does not make it true. They were highly influenced by the pagan traditions of their day, and that's what brought them to this belief. 
When Samuel was summoned by Saul through the witch of Endor, Samuel didn't say, Why did you disturb my sleep? He said, Why did you disturb me? Although the late Samuel was irritated, during his conversation with Saul, he demonstrated that he was already knowledgeable as to what had been going on between Saul and God. Scripture suggests that there is an immediacy with those who are elect, that they are either alive or they are with Jesus. However, this immediacy does not seem to be suggested regarding those who were damned in regard to their residency in hell. So, I suppose it is possible, because Scripture does not eliminate the possibility, that there may be some kind of a delay prior to someone's soul taking up permanent residency in hell. And what happens during that delay? I don't know. Scripture is silent. My observations regarding ghosts can be summed up as this. The spirits of the elect are immediately with Jesus upon death. The spirits of the damned reside eventually in hell. These two categories include every human being. But if for some reason God does allow the soul of someone to temporarily linger, what's the word? Uh, No loitering. Yeah, to loiter around the physical realm, Remember this, humans are completely prohibited by God to contact or attempt to contact the spirits of dead people. In summary, both the Old and New Testaments are saturated with scriptures pertaining to both the spiritual places called heaven and hell. Hell is known by a variety of names, all pointing to the same dark and fiery holding place of the damned, where the spirits of the wicked are tormented until the final judgment. There's a sound scriptural basis to believe that when the elect die, their bodies decay and their spirits go to be in the presence of Jesus in heaven, where, like the martyrs before the throne, they await the resurrection in some sort of conscious spiritual form. They're conversant and aware of their surroundings. The spirits of the departed elect are not unconscious spirit vegetables stacked up like spirit cordwood. For the elect, there's nothing to fear in death. It's something Paul looked forward to. Being present with Jesus after we die is a part of the benefit package of those who have been purchased by him and made his own. Upon Jesus' return to the earth, he'll bring with him all the spirits of the elect and they'll be reunited with their new, resurrected bodies. And with that, that's what I have to offer right now regarding the biblical worldview of the spirit realm. There's a great deal I've left unsaid regarding the unseen realm where spirits dwell. Many subtopics I could have addressed. Hundreds of scriptures left unused. But this is the best I could do to impart my current understanding of what the Bible has to say about the unseen spirit realm in a podcast that's short enough to be practical and have any chance of holding the attention of people. Well, what are the key takeaways? The unseen spirit realm is real and affects the physical world we are currently a part of. The story being told in the Bible has much to do with that realm. Failing to set aside our 21st century worldview as we examine scripture and perceive what's going on around us leaves us in danger of not fully understanding the story we are being told in the Bible. Jesus is the center of both the physical and unseen spirit realms of creation. 
He is the star of the story that God has written. It just turns out that the story is even grander than most today will ever know. As followers of Jesus, we are told to set our affection on the things that are above. In large part, that's what this series has been about. I am very confident in my work that's led to this series, given where I'm at in my journey of seeking the truth. I'm not infallible, though. So I would encourage you to do the work for yourself. That work, meaning study the scriptures and not just someone else's opinions you find in a book or a YouTube video or a podcast like this one. If you find some other explanations for the passages that you study that I haven't already addressed, I'm anxious to hear and consider them. If the Lord takes me or returns and tells me everything or anything I've said turns out to be wrong, I am not going to argue with him. (laughs) My greatest hope is that this podcast series has inspired you in some way, whether it's through setting out to study scripture and prove me wrong, or it's agreeing with me and wanting to learn more and seek out the truth about that which is above with a renewed energy. In the next episode, of course, Lord willing, we'll begin a new series based on the book I wrote called False Christian Gods, Choose Your Jesus Wisely. I talked a little about that in the last episode, but please join me next time and see what that's all about. And finally, one more reminder that I have two YouTube videos posted on the Doug Hooley Ministries YouTube channel. They're called The Biblical History of the Spirit Realm, and you can check those out there. So until next time, I encourage you to be in prayerful support of one another within the Ecclesia during this present darkness we're living in. And may God bless you and keep you. And Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at, at Doug H. Ministries. And I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com. Or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.